Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two guides to the deep dive. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtuck. And Jordan, I sat and thought for a long time about how I was going to introduce this. But there is no introducing what we're talking about today. There is no introducing David Lynch's Eraserhead, which turned 45 this year. There are two camps to this movie. You have seen it and are haunted by it. And even if you can't stand this film, it will haunt you to some degree. Or you've never seen it and are therefore only biding your time until you become haunted by it. Yeah, they used to sell lapel buttons that just read Eraserhead. I saw it. And that about sums it up. Lynch has repeatedly said that he will never reveal his intended meaning for this, what I guess I'll just call a lucid nightmare, uh, Mm -hmm. saying only that it's a dream of dark and troubling things. And you can say that again. Most critics describe it as an abstract meditation on urban isolation, fatherhood, and sexual repression. But uh, Freud called it the feel-good film of the year. I I will get into this later. I refuse to believe that the meaning of this film is as oblique as he would like it to be. It seems pretty straightforward to me. But we're putting the head ahead of the eraser. Nope, that was terrible. I apologize for that. Uh, Jordan, are you a David Lynch guy? Capital D-L-G. No, I just his daily YouTube weather reports and his guest <laughs> spots on Louie as the comedy coach. I went to NYU for film, and I think that just kind of spoiled him for me because I knew Lynch people. I knew a guy in class who literally had the words Club Silencio from Mulholland Drive tattooed on his wrists. So I too much David Lynch in my life. Uh, sure. Just, which is weird because I didn't watch much of it, but just... Well, wait, what have what, what of it have you watched? Um... Mulholland Drive in school, and really, okay. that was it. I know. Oh, I'm you're not. Real, you didn't even watch I'm the worst. No, I. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited for this, <laughs> folks. Let it be known that Jordan pitched this. I believe with the intention that I would not take him up on it, and he's regretted it ever since. Yeah, I'd never seen it, and then I watched it for the first time about a week ago, and um, I haven't slept since. 
<laughs> uh, but you know, but why I, do you, you? Yeah, why do you love David Lynch? I, I have, there are three reasons why I love David Lynch. Like me, he's a massive Beatles fan, and he attended their first ever concert in the United States in Washington D.C. in February of 1964. So that's Did cool. That. He yep. also spent his 15th birthday in front of the U.S. Capitol watching the inauguration of JFK with his scout troop. And <laughs> Heigl, like you, he's an Eagle Scout. Uh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> and finally. When he was in college in Boston, he was the roommate of Jay Giles band singer Peter Wolf, a.k.a. the guy who sang <laughs> Centerfold and Freeze Frame. But apparently Lynch kicked him out of the dorm because he was too weird. He was too weird for David Lynch. I love that. I The, the popular logline with David Lynch is Jimmy Stewart on acid, right? Because mm. he's like this Midwestern... You know, if you... It, we'll see if you put me at ease enough. I might bust out the David Lynch impression. Oh, um, But yeah, I... I would be hard-pressed to think of another person so genuinely avant-garde and bizarre who has had such an impact on mainstream American cinema in such a short amount of time. I mean, you think about Eraserhead. Eraserhead to Mulholland Drive is like, what, 25 years in that yeah. neighborhood? I'm really bad at math. 24 like, years, In that yeah. neighborhood? Yeah. That's wild to coming in within spitting distance of an Oscar in a quarter century of your career after this that's nuts. I was shocked about how comparatively little he'd done. I mean, for somebody who has, yeah. you know, such a legion of followers, I was just very surprised that the, his canon was Slim. not a lot. Yeah, I was very, very surprised yeah. by that. I, I didn't know that. But, folks, enough banter. Yeah, we're, we're delaying the inevitable here. Yeah, join us now as we take in the industrial wastelands of both Philadelphia and David Lynch's subconscious. <laughs> pierce the veil of Jack Nance's haircut and attempt, on my part at least, far too many Gordon Cole impressions. Here's everything you didn't know about Eraserhead. Jordan, in the late 60s, you might say that David Lynch was at a crossroads. <laughs> Never gets old. Every time. But that crossroads was in Philadelphia. He's talked a lot about how he had a very, very happy childhood, a very stable and happy childhood. Um, do we he, believe he, that? I kind of do. I mean, we'll get into Mel Brooks's, what Mel Brooks thought of David Lynch later. But yeah, so he's he bounced around the U.S. a good bit. Uh, his dad was in the USDA. And by the late 60s, he is been enrolled at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia to study painting. Have you seen his paintings, his cartoons? Oh, well, uh, his cartoon, he had a cartoon in the... The Angriest Dog in the World. Yes, the Los Angeles Daily yeah. Reader for like a decade. And it's yep. just still images of this dog. And it's always prefaced by this thing. It's like, this dog is so angry that he can't move. He can't speak. He can't eat. Yeah. Rigor mortis has set in. And it's just this still images of this dog with like morbid thoughts like what if this is as good as it gets yeah, yeah it's it's pretty amazing <laughs> so yes i have seen that and then his paintings <laughs> his paintings are like francis bacon meets yep john wayne gacy <laughs> oh boy i'm loving this already anyway so he's there to work on that aesthetic um <laughs> and he marries a fellow student named peggy Reevy in 1967 and she's the mother of their daughter jennifer uh, Jennifer was born in 1968 and would go on to direct Boxing Helena, which is um, yeah. a really bad movie. Anyway, this little nuclear family 
is living in a North Philadelphia neighborhood called Fairmont, which was not a great place to live at the time. David Lynch's quotes about Philadelphia are their own art form. I want to do a David Lynch style surrealist podcast that's just me reading his quotes about Philadelphia. We lived cheap, but the city was full of fear, he told Chris Rodley in a book called Lynch on Lynch. A kid was shot to death down the street. We were robbed twice, had windows shot out, and a car stolen. The house was first broken into only three days after we moved in. Uh, And according to another Lynch site by Mike Hartman called The City of Absurdity, Lynch said that Eraserhead was born in Philadelphia. And my favorite quote, I had my first thrilling thought in Philadelphia, which sounds like a Paul Anka song. (laughs) The less successful follow-up to I Left My Heart in San Francisco. (laughs) I had my first thrilling thought in Philadelphia. Uh, (laughs) Talking about Eraserhead in later years, I think it might have been in the Lynch and Lynch book. He said, I call it my Philadelphia story. It just doesn't (laughs) have Jimmy Stewart in it. And uh, that's for damn sure. I, I'm I'm gonna get into it. I lived at 14th and Wood, right kitty corner from the morgue. That's real industrial. <laughs> There's my first Lynch. That was good. That was really good. Thank you. I'm very, it's, it's a tough one to nail too. I'm impressed. You it's found the hook flat. for that. Yeah. It's very western. You gotta um, unless it was at five o'clock. There's nobody in that neighborhood. No one lives there. And he says, I really do like that. It's beautiful if you see it in the right way, which is such a great thesis for so much of his work with this industrial stuff. And it's beautiful if you look at it in the right way. Uh, His roommate at the time, a childhood friend named Jack Fisk, told the New York Times in 1990 that David would dress up to visit the morgue. I love it. (laughs) He was fascinated and he would always wear at least two ties, one for luck. Have you seen the set photos of him around this time when he's wearing like the big wide brimmed hat and like and three, three ties. neckties? Yeah, I saw a woman in the backyard squawking like a chicken. No, nope, it's going. It's getting away from me. Uh, That's Neil Young. Her... <laughs> I saw a woman in the backyard squawking like a chicken. I saw a grown woman grab her breast and speak like a baby, complaining her nipples hurt. This kind of thing will set you back. <laughs> and hey, so we're hearing about it. All right, we're gonna. I, I I gotta stop. I gotta stop subjecting you to David Lynch quotes about Philadelphia. One time, I was walking around with a at night with a stick with nails driven through it, and a squad car pulls up alongside of me, and he says, "What have you got there?" And I showed this stick with nails driven through it. He said, "Good for you, bud," and took off. <laughs> Jesus. So now that we have the set and setting of a razor head, it's important to know that it was not his first choice for a project. Based on the strength of some early shorts that he did around this time, Lynch had been accepted into the American Film Institute's Center for Advanced Film Studies in 1970 in Beverly Hills. Uh, And while he was there, he studied with a Czechoslovakian filmmaker named Frank Daniel. Yeah, and you know, not a lot of people know this, but Lynch actually moved to L.A. after getting into a fight on the basketball court with two guys who were up to no good making trouble in his neighborhood. So he went to live with some family members in Bel Air. Um (laughs) He, he didn't. I'm sure I'll cut that out. <laughs> thought if I really committed to it, something would come, but no. <laughs> this is gets into like David Lynch's thing about being like, that's not what the movie's about, but it's like obviously what the movie's about. He had a script for a film called um, Garden Back, which is really bizarre, obviously, but it's, it's about infidelity because he had cheated on Peggy, I believe, repeatedly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, tell us about Garden Back. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, a lot of these characters were inspired by characters in his paintings, which we, we touched on earlier. Is that before he was at the uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, he studied uh, in Boston at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts. So he's very accomplished painter and musician. Like he on, on yeah. the set during breaks of filming, he used to like play trumpet just like for the heck of it. With uh, have you heard his record Crazy Clown Time? I I haven't. <laughs> Is it is it what I imagine? It's weird. It's weird. I don't know it's what weird. I imagine. Yeah, it's just weird. Um, a lot of the quotes we're taking from this come from uh, Eraserhead, comma the David Lynch Files, Volume One, the full story of one of the strangest films ever made by a guy named Kenneth George Godwin. Really incredible book. But it's funny, given that Lynch became such an iconoclast, because there was a lot of interest in him at AFI at the time. Um, cinematographer Caleb Deschanel, who is yes Zoe's dad. And her mom is in Twin Peaks. She's um, what? Mama Hayward. She's uh, Doc Hayward's wife who's in, um, in the wheelchair. So Caleb introduces Lynch to a 20th Century Fox producer who wanted to option Garden back from a short into a feature. And the process of doing this and these negotiations and talks exasperated Lynch so much that he quit. I mean, he has in various interviews, he talks about basically... The storming Just, into the dean's office, yeah, right? and yeah. being like, "I'm done with this," and then getting home and Peggy being like, "They've been calling nonstop." Yeah, like he was, he was. They really wanted him, um, which and is so, crazy. I mean, but, but just, <laughs> I, I cannot imagine a film institution doing that now. I mean, apparently the dean even said to him, "Hey, if you're this unhappy, we're doing something wrong here. What do you want? What's wrong?" Which is, yeah, I, I cannot imagine getting a vote of confidence like that. In any it's really artistic institution now. I, there's something, there's, I mean, you know, you alluded to this with the weather reports, but there is something magnetic about him. Yeah, and the fact that yeah. he was able to get people on board with this, his ridiculous ideas, is really a testament to his charisma, I don't know, powers of persuasion. Anyway, Gardenback crashes and burns. Lynch almost quits the AFI, and, and Daniels is like, whatever we got to do, let's do it. And that turns out to be a racer head. 21-page shooting script is where this comes from. And there's a great documentary from 2001 that is called Eraserhead Stories. It's just him talking into a mic, pretty tight close-up on his shoulders and, and head. And at one point, the log lady, Catherine Coulson, who is part of this film, we'll talk about her, she's, like, conference called in, and half of it is just him, like, yelling at her, like, on speakerphone, off the mic, like, yeah. Yeah, you did cut his hair for that, didn't you? How many years yeah. were you on this, Kathy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, I don't remember that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and he, I can't he, he in in like very big text at the beginning of it, it said that it's this is documentaries directed by him as well, which I think is hilarious <laughs> that it's just a tight shot of him and an old 90s speakerphone. What? Uh, I can't remember when I got the idea, when the word eraser head or any part of the idea came to me first, he says. I can't remember if it was in Philadelphia or when I came to California. Don't remember writing the script and don't remember the ideas coming in. It all came from Philadelphia, but I don't remember when. And it's, uh, I mean, <laughs> not only was he at a crossroads, but he was at a low point when he started filming this in 72 with a projected runtime of 42 minutes. Doreen Small, who's Eraserhead's production manager, um, there's a theme in David Lynch's movies in which he has affairs with the women he's working on. Uh, Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet was one of them. And so he split from Peggy around this time because he was having an affair with Doreen Small. And Jennifer was born with uh, clubbed feet, uh, which is a deformity that 
I guess was a lot more common back then and you had to wear like corrective footwear. I don't know where I'm going with this. The point is, is that this movie is almost certainly about, about the dissolution of his relationship and having uh, a daughter who had medical challenges when she was born and his complete uninterest in being a father. Uh, disinterest? Lack of interest? I don't know. But he's, you know, if you're listening to him, or Jennifer, apparently, that is not what it's about. Because she said, I don't think David credits that directly as where Eraserhead comes from. But then she says, it's not just that. It's a million other things. So I just think that the fact that she calls her dad David is very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I imagine despite what he says, that fatherhood and the anxieties surrounding it uh, was a major inspiration. But I've also read that some of these other things that they mention uh, could include the Kafka novel Metamorphosis, uh, for which I think he actually wrote a script adaptation. And the uh, Gogol short story from 1836, The Nose, both of those may have helped sow the seeds of this idea for Eraserhead. The Kafka influence is really apparent in the character of Henry, who is just, like so many of Kafka's characters, just simultaneously bemused by the world and terrified of it and extremely paranoid. And Lynch himself has copped to the Kafka thing, and he said that in, I think it was in Lynch on Lynch, that he's, quote, the one artist I feel could be my brother. Yeah, and so many of these characters are just, like, caught up in institutions and machinery bigger than them. That's actually really interesting, because, like, so much of, you think about, like, the trial and, like, a lot of the other Kafka stuff that's just about, like, being stuck in some kind of institutional machine that is far bigger than you. And David Lynch literalizes it with people actually stuck in machines. (laughs) Well, I mean, just even the famous picture of Henry, the main character in Eraserhead, that's, you know, on t-shirts and posters and dorm rooms across the globe. Just that look on his face that's completely unidentifiable is that mix of bemusement and paranoia and terror, uh, which is, I just think is interesting because that's such a hallmark of Kafka's work. I mean, that's not an especially groundbreaking thought for, you know, you know, <laughs> well, for either of us. I'm not a Lynch scholar, but... Um, <laughs> or a Kafka scholar, neither am I. I yeah. was an English major, so theoretically I should have closer, I should be closer to it than you. Uh, and I am not. David Foster Wallace was a big David Lynch fan, and he... Yeah, he, he wrote about... I remember one of the first things I read from him was that essay about Lost Highway. Yeah, and he, I think he described Lynchian as the unbelievably grotesque, existing in a kind of union with the unbelievably banal. There it is. Speaking of Jack Nance, David went through a spiritual crisis when he was making a Eraserhead. Uh, Nance told the New York Times for that article we cited earlier from 1990... And Lynch has, (laughs) it's become a meme at this point of David Lynch, the the thing that says, believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual work. And somebody, the interviewer says, elaborate on that. And he says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't talk about that is the the thing that he usually says in these interviews that I've seen. It's like, I I don't talk about that. The other thing that I heard is that he opened a Bible randomly and was inspired by a biblical verse, but he says he doesn't remember which one or even if it was the Old or New Testament. So, I, you know, we've had a lot of unreliable narrators on here. I don't Neil think Young. Lynch is... I don't think Lynch is up there with Neil Young or Jimmy Page, who are very interested, in, or Robert Plant even, who are all very interested in their own hagiography, but I Lynch just does not seem to remember things or wants to consciously obfuscate Anyway, (laughs) the shoestring this thing was made on is so fascinating to me. 
AFI gave him $10,000 to make this. But everything else on this was done so close to the bone. He was living at uh, a property in Beverly Hills called Greystone Mansion that was owned by the AFI. And this this place is its own weird vibe. It was built by the oil tycoon Edward Doheny, or Doheny, I don't know. He was the inspiration for Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. And he gave it to his son, Ned, who in 1929 died in a guest bedroom in a murder-suicide alongside his secretary, Hugh Plunkett. And this thing has been in everything. It would take less time for us to name what it hasn't been in. Um, I I prefer to zero in on two in particular that this property has been featured in. Uh, It's in the Big Lebowski. It's the Mm -hmm. other Jeffrey Lebowski's house. Um, Mr. Lebowski is in seclusion in the the (laughs) West Wing. (laughs) I think all the interiors were filmed there for that. And it was also used in the video for Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love. (laughs) I just love the fact that David Lynch lived at this place. Um, It cost the equivalent of $63 $63 million when it was built, making it the most expensive home in California at the time. And certainly one of the biggest, it's 46,000 square feet, 55 rooms. Thinking about where Lynch was living in Philadelphia, right. it's just an insane jump. But, you know, predicting the stinky cologne of death that would follow this film... Uh, <laughs> For the next few years, several people associated with the Eraserhead production, including star Jack Nance, claimed to have seen the ghost of Ned Doheny while they were filming. I think it's Doheny because I think Doheny, the street in L.A., is named after him or named after the family, I think. Uh, You know, this is a crazy connection my mind just made. David Lynch loves milkshakes. What's the famous line from There Will Be Blood? Oh, my God. I drink your milkshake. Yep. Wow. Drink it right. And I, st- I have a straw that reaches all the way over. <laughs> God, I love that movie. When he says, "I," this is going to be my gravestone when he goes, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing it with these people. <laughs> he puts people in. You hear the verbal air quotes around people. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. Oh, uh, it's bad I see myself in all these terrible characters, isn't it, Jordan? Yeah. Um, I'm are, the dad. Are. I'm the dad in Eraserhead. Uh, we don't talk too much about the dinner scene, but I... This is the thing about this movie, man. People are like, oh, it's a surrealist. Well, it's a comedy. So much of it, until it gets really horrifying and right. the baby. The baby is the only thing that undercuts the comedy. But that dinner scene is so funny. It's like when an English wife, comedy of manners or something. Where she has that weird seizure and runs out of the room and he goes... She'll be fine in a minute. <laughs> it's All very right. English. It's very yeah. like a Joe Orton play or something. Yeah. Um. All right. Anyway, so David Lynch is living in the There Will Be Blood house. <laughs> He's squatting, essentially. There are blankets taped over the windows. And he, it's this extended sort of subterranean part of the property. It's stables, garages, uh, staffed quarters, a hayloft, a greenhouse. And he kind of commandeered it. He said, we had about five or six rooms in this giant loft where all of the sets were built, a miniature soundstage, and a studio. Um, But there are some exteriors on this. Yeah, probably the most famous one at the beginning when he's kind of walking through this urban industrial wasteland. It was filmed in a muddy lot, which is now the Beverly Center Mall in Los Angeles, which is a (laughs) very, very upscale establishment. So it's really funny that it has this historical pedigree. It's even funnier considering how cheaply this movie was shot. Yeah. I mean, they were literally, it was like the classic like 
Wiley, they were they were Wiley E. Coyote pulling the track up behind them and putting it down in front of them, only run in reverse because they would build this stuff, they would buy equipment, tear the sets down, reconfigure the sets into other stuff, and then whenever they were done using it, uh, sell it. Like Lynch talked about, he got this, um, what's the big editing bay thing called? A movie? Moviola. Moviola, yeah. He got the, and, and then sold it when they were done. It, so much of it. Catherine Coulson, we talked about this, the log lady. Uh, from Twin Peaks, she was married to Jack Nance. Um, while the star they were making of the movie, this. yeah, and um, she was the production manager on this, and so she had done so much of this log work or leg work, <laughs> log work. Uh, uh, and she said all of these rooms were the same space with different sets built in. David really pretty much did everything himself. And I guess he would later reuse a lot of the chunks of the set for Twin Peaks in later years, like the zigzag floor in the lobby of Henry's apartment building or hotel, whatever the hell it is, was the same set piece that was used for the Red Room in Twin Peaks. But yeah, Catherine Coulson is kind of the MVP of this production. In addition to working as a waitress, which I think she gave like all of her paychecks to the production, she held the mic boom, she operated the cameras, she took on set photos, and she catered. And she cut Jack Nance's hair, and oh, at one point right. she took over David Lynch's paper route for him, which is the most, you talk about Jimmy Stewart on acid, yes. David Lynch driving around L.A. at four in the morning delivering papers. Yeah, we, we got more to say on that. Yeah, But I love that he insisted on paying the actors. I think that's so touching. Yes. I guess he gave them, I think it was $25 a week, and then when he ran out of money, he insisted on giving them all a piece of the film. And they worked out this deal on napkins during one of their trips to Bob's Big Boy's Diner for milkshakes, <laughs> which has a tie to Austin Powers uh, oh. in a previous episode. Oh, Explain. Oh, well, uh, the Bob's Big... Yeah, well, explain for the listeners. Uh, the Bob's Big Boy figurine <laughs> is... What? It's like a space... It's like Dr. Evil's spaceship or something? Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember what yeah. it was used as. Yeah. Um. So uh, they furnished this film. They did wardrobe from, you know, flea markets, swap meets, the Salvation Army, Goodwill. Um. Jack Nance and Catherine Coulson gave their living room furniture up as a set, so they went without it. For months, say, this, this film took filmed. five years to shoot. Did they just not have living room furniture for that? <laughs> time? Yeah, I guess. Um, the warehouse only cost about thirty-five or fifty dollars to build, but a lot of other things cost money. Lynch said. So the front of Mister and Missus X house, the which is not even in the movie that much. It's like one establishing shot of this house. The steps are styrofoam. There is no porch at all. And when Henry walks up on that, he is standing on a plank. And Lynch said the whole thing was barely held together. Yeah, I mean, some of the flats, which are like the walls that are used in sound stages to construct, you know, interior rooms, they uh, Lynch would repair them with paper mache using newspapers from his paper route day job, and a lot of like the Art Deco detailing on the elevator in the in Henry's lobby like the apartment lobby is all made out of wax it's all stuff that david lynch made out of wax and i also thought it was really interesting they dip the white sheets into tea to make it so that you know in black and white it wouldn't be this brilliant white on film but this kind of more dull gray which kind of like what they do with newspapers to make it look old yeah. like when you're making treasure maps and stuff they dip it in tea i was gonna say all my childhood craft books told me to do that <laughs> um unsurprisingly his parents Peggy's parents pitched in, but my favorite part about this is his paper route delivering the Wall Street Journal. He made uh, $48.50 a week on his 210 paper route. Wow. His very first night, the run took him six hours, but he eventually narrowed it down to an 
hour. How? I speeding. I guess Catherine Coulson, like we said, took it over at one point because he would do these marathon shoots and then sometimes not be left with enough time to do the route. So she would dip out and do it for him. And she would have these directions that he gave her on a tape recorder. So which <laughs> presumably right. means I was going to say like, somewhere there's a tape of him being like, when you get to the orange house, turn right, Catherine. And you know who the angel, uh, what, what we call in the startup culture, an angel investor. <laughs> Lynch's buddies, Jack Fisk's girlfriend and eventually wife, Sissy Spacek. That is crazy. But also it makes a certain amount of spiritual sense because the sight of her in a bloody prom dress is probably one of the most haunting cinematic images of the 70s. So it does make sense that she would be mixed up with something equally disturbing. Um, she apparently would come on the set and help out and hold the slate when Jack Fisk was in the shot, which earned her a thanks in the credits. Yeah, I love that she's credited in this. My other favorite David Lynch odd job is uh, plumbing. His pool quote on that is that there is something deeply satisfying about directing the flow of water. Which, you know, there is. He's he's onto something there. You know, uh, Jack Nance had a day job, too, delivering flowers. Can you imagine it's Mother's Day and Henry, the doorbell Henry. rings and Henry with the hair because he kept the hair for all the years it was in production. So presumably he looked just like the guy on the Eraserhead poster, answer the door, and there he is with a bouquet of flowers. No, That's so nuts no, to me. No, no thank you. <laughs> just like, we don't want them. They get. He says that we got kicked out of AFI after about two or three years of being down there, which, yes, they were squatting and shooting a film more or less illegally there. And so it got down to the wire. They finished initial shots on this 30 hours straight they shot. Huh. Wow. Overnight shoots. Yeah, they used to do a lot of shoots at night because I guess during the day there were a lot of gardeners on the property and it just, they made too much noise and also probably maybe they didn't want the witnesses to all the stuff they were doing. <laughs> sure. Um, and they would shoot until dawn until the birds came out and I guess there would be this call of birds that went around <laughs> which was like the unofficial sign that the shoot was over for the night. Yeah, I mentioned earlier there's these great onset photos from this of like him in this w- uh, not in keeping with our later image of him this like wide brimmed hat at the three ties we've talked about. He loves coffee. Uh, which we've talked about. It's obvious from Twin Peaks and everything, but... um, Like 20 cups a day at some point, right? Oh, a shitload of coffee. And he was a chain smoker when he started working on this film, but he uh, took up Transcendental Meditation, which he is a big proponent of. There's a David Lynch Transcendental Meditation Foundation. He took that up during the shoot and went vegetarian. And so he would... He talks about, like, it's important... It's important to give yourself a treat. Uh... (laughs) It's getting worse. I no, think. I disagree. Not, uh, I think, please, oh, okay. please right, commit to I'm the di- bit. I'm dialing it in. So yeah, he would say it's important to get yourself a treat after a long day of filming. And it started, his treat started as grilled cheese sandwiches. He would go into diners and the restaurant where Colson worked and order grilled cheeses in the afternoon. But he now, his big thing since then has been Bob's Big Boy Milkshakes. And he talks about like, yeah, I would just get them and pour sugar into them and drink them up and get all kinds of neat ideas. And he went there every day for like eight years, right? Something like that. And then he yeah. had to not because he was going to miss like a, a, the editing due date to get a film submitted to like con <laughs> or something. And he was like, yeah, killed me. Like almost killed me not to make it. <laughs> Jack Nance, real weirdo. Love Jack Nance. But um, 
you know, he's the iconic image from the film. He's he's uh, Pete in Twin Peaks. He's a just a delight. Lynch called him one of my best friends to the Criterion Collection in 2014. But they did not have a particularly good interview. Nance was married to Coulson at the time, and I, I think he actually got her involved. But their bonding point, what solidified this great friendship for the ages, was David Lynch's Volkswagen which he had jury rigged with a like a wooden rack to like a luggage rack kind of thing to help him haul crap around. And um, I guess this was out in the parking lot or something. And Jack Nance looked at it and said, boy, whoever built that thing must be on the ball. So David Lynch then said, thank you, Jack. I did that. And you're hired. <laughs> that was his audition to get into a racer head was complimenting his tricked out VW. Was it a, it was a beetle, I assume? I hope it was a Beetle. Uh, yeah. It probably might have been one of their weird truck things, but yeah, that thing, I mean, between that and the paper route, that thing did the, that was the real unsung hero of Eraserhead. It's David Lynch's Volkswagen. Well, man, you know what they say, flattery will get you a mutated calf carcass. Oh boy, where do we get to the baby? Oh uh, yeah, that's right. We'll talk about the baby later. I mean, I yeah, that's... <sighs> Hold your horses. Hold your babies. Hold your calf fetuses. <laughs> We'll get there. I love that we're taping this on Mother's Day, by the way. There's something oh, very... Oh, yeah, that's so weird. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jack Nance's hair. Where do we begin? Um, <laughs> Jack had a particular type of hair that when you tease it and comb it, it just stays. It was the most fantastic head of hair. And when we first saw what happened for the tall look and how tall it was, we were shocked. After a few minutes, I said, this is it. Um, he said he doesn't remember if it was Jack Nance who did it the first time, whether it was by a woman named Charlotte Stewart or Colson. But Coulson wound up dragooned into maintaining it. We mentioned earlier she also cooked because they were feeding everyone on takeout. And then they were like, the, the takeout budget's been slashed. Catherine, can you cook? Egg salad, grilled cheese. Yeah. So she ends up the person in charge of doing the hair. And, and she said, I took a kind of maniacal pleasure from backcombing his hair. And it apparently made the entire crew burst out laughing the first time they saw him. And you said earlier that he wore this hairstyle for the entire duration of the shoot, which is not, strictly speaking, true. What happened was his hair was on call for this. So they would... <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, I don't know if we mentioned this up top, f up top. Five years to shoot this, to finish this movie. Because they had no money. It was just like, go, yeah. like as soon as they had a little bit of money to literally just buy like film stock, then yeah. they'd go. It was, I mean, there wasn't like they were using that to build anything elaborate or even necessarily by the end pay anybody. It was literally to get film stock to shoot on and half the time they would get it donated. Or used. Well, because the, the the soundtrack is old film uh, sound stock that had been thrown out. They drove his VW there. Some of the film stock too because Peter Bogdanovich was making Paper Moon on black and white film and some of the leftover stuff that he didn't use they got donated too. Oh, Peter Bogdanovich. I should be wearing a neckerchief right now. <laughs> Um, Colson on Jack Nance's hair, she said when he wasn't shooting for a long time, he would let it go, but then he would have to have another haircut before we started to shoot again. My family didn't know him any other way except for that goofy hair. We have a lot of family pictures at Christmas time with Jack with this haircut, which is amazing because somewhere in the world, there are Christmas <laughs> portraits of Jack Nance and lo the log lady from Twin Peak with his hair in the razor head and their parents. She joked that it was uh, partially responsible for them getting divorced, but they also worked together on Twin Peaks. They remained friends. Nance is responsible for another great bit of the Eraserhead lore, which is that that baby who we're going to get to, we keep teasing this baby. This is like Chekhov's gun. Uh, <laughs> we mentioned it in the first act, and now someone's going to have to get shot with it in the third act. That baby is named Spike. And uh, someone asked, asked Nance where he got that, and he said, I think it was on the birth certificate. <laughs> um, and he has a positively Kafka-esque bit of what they asked him. His what he rider. To, yeah, his rider, essentially. It was a, a room and a chair. <laughs> That's all he wanted for accommodations. For Which, I mean, given the budget and how long this yeah, took, I was that's gonna all say, he That got. might have been a stretch. They probably tried to argue him down to a stool. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> all right, so we haven't talked about um, the other side of the family. We haven't talked about Mary X, 
Yes, Mary X is Henry's girlfriend's long-suffering girlfriend in this. Yeah. Uh, she's played by Charlotte Stewart, and I love this connection. Uh, she would often come to the Eraserhead set straight from her day job shooting The Little House on the Prairie, where she had a starring role as Miss Beetle. I just, I love that she would go from the most hallmark show in existence to Eraserhead, often on the same day. I mean, I can't believe... She made it out alive. I like the idea of her confusing her lines from like sleep deprivation. <laughs> like she's on uh, Little House on the Prairie and she's like, they're not even sure it is a baby. <laughs> uh, this film was only supposed to take six weeks, 21 oh pages, God. projected 42 minute runtime. False. No, that was long. They initially said 21. The yeah. dean at, at the AFI was like, 21 minutes? And he's like, uh, it might be a hair longer. Okay. <laughs> Because like script pages usually equate to one page right. a minute, so I thought forty two minutes max. Come on, like what are we thinking here? Yeah, I mean they they yeah, I mean Lynch was Louis who's squatting. He lived in Henry's actual room, but yeah, please tell us about Lynch's living situation further. I mean because it was illegal, they had to make it look like he wasn't there. So he was living in Henry's room. That that just absolutely claustrophobic cubby hole that is you know. It's, just, it's got a great radiator. It's got a great radiator. It does. That's where David Lynch actually lived for, I would assume, years during this production. But because it was illegal, they had to make it look like he wasn't there. So they achieved this by bolting him in with one door and padlocking the other from the outside so as not to arouse suspicion. So he's locked in this room, which is ter- which a- adds a whole other level of terrifying. It's also a very Bushwick thing. My, my, I was going to say, what, what's yeah. your personal experience with this living arrangement? Yeah, my dear friend did something similar. He was living in the furnace room of his art gallery in Bushwick. And Oof. the room was hidden behind a movable tool shelf that was just on hinges. But it, you know, when it was in place, it looked just like a regular shelf. And as a sort of makeshift handle, he bolted a shovel that just looked like <laughs> it was just hanging there. But it was just bolted there. It didn't go anywhere. So, yeah. Yeah, probably the most exemplary part of this shooting schedule is there's a shot in this film there's a cut in which the first part of the shot and the second part occurred 18 months apart (laughs) yeah henry opens up the door to his apartment and he's seen entering from the other side in the next shot a year and a half later he had aged 18 months Yeah, I mean, the filming took so long for this that several years in, Lynch's own family tried to talk him out of the project. And he's talked about this in a couple different interviews. He recalled his parents and his younger brother saying to him, you know, you've been on this Eraserhead film for many years. You have a wife and a daughter to think about. We think it's time you get a regular job, take responsibility. And he said this was devastating to me, as, you know, I assume it would be after sinking years into this. Um, and there was even a time when he briefly considered finishing the movie with an animated Henry to just fill in the, the gaps in the movie. <laughs> I wish for everyone attempting any kind of yeah. creative life. I wish you the iron will that propelled David Lynch to finish Eraserhead. Uh, segue. A lot of people died. <laughs> <laughs> so many people died. Um, not really so many people, but we mentioned enough. earlier that enough <laughs> enough people died to make this movie. There's that weird murder suicide at Greystone, so that's ding ding one and two. Um, the film's original director of photography 
Herbert Cardwell died in his sleep two months in. Ding! Peter <laughs> Ivers, the musician who wrote the film's theme in heaven, which we will talk about later, was found bludgeoned to death by a hammer in his apartment in 1983. Ding! A crime that remains unsolved. And lastly, Jack Nance got into a fight outside of Winchell's Donuts in 1996, and he told his friends, I guess I got what I deserved after that. And then he went home and died of a subdural hematoma, which is a fairly common way of dying in a fight. You get your head knocked, you think you're fine, you go home and you have an internal hemorrhage, essentially. Good Lord. For those of you keeping track at home, the subdural hemorrhage count in this episode is at one. <laughs> Stands at one. Uh, it might not seem like it based on the finished project, but Eraserhead was tightly rehearsed and shot within an inch of its life. Every reaction and every look and everything that was happening inside Henry's head, we had to get into that in great detail, Nance said. I remember one particular shot, a very simple, quick shot. I was supposed to say, no kidding, or something like that, and turn and walk away. And we worked on take after take after take, a whole reel of film. And you'll wow. remember, they were picking this out of trash cans and driving it around L.A., Cardwell, he said, just opened up the magazine and started throwing the film out on the floor, saying, well, at least we won't have to look at that in the screening room, which is just what you want your DP to say. (laughs) (laughs) There was a period of time when we would rehearse just me and Jack in that room. Sorry, I'm doing it again. And work things out. This is David Lynch, obviously. And those (laughs) rehearsals took a long, long time. Every little thing would be planned. The film's first shot, one take. Wow. Drops Mike. Damn. And now... Enough about the visuals. Let's talk about the audio. Yeah, we now come to the real meat of this episode, which is Alan Splett. Alan Splett, everyone. This is kind of messed up. Alan Splett, who is also a Philly guy. Lynch's long-term sound designer, I think we should say. He has also referred to him as a best friend. He famously became a punchline when he was nominated for the sound design for Black Stallion at the Oscars, and he won, but he was not at the ceremony because he was working on Elephant Man in London with Lynch. And Johnny Carson turned it into a running punchline on the show. And you love Johnny Carson, so I want you to do this. Yeah, he he was hosting the Oscars that night, and he kept doing Alan Splett updates. Because nobody could believe that, like, you know, it's I guess it's one thing if you have, like, Marlon Brando or George C. Scott skipping the Oscars yeah. to make a political point or because they're filming some other movie or something. But this was just, you know, you don't expect a kind of anonymous tech guy to skip the biggest night in the professional lives. So he just made this ongoing joke about it and kept doing these recurring Alan Splett updates all night. <laughs> And Johnny had him, oh, he missed his freeway turn off. And oh, he's in a gas station with carburetor trouble outside of Banning, California. He kept like having all like all through the night. It was it was medium funny. Um <laughs> but Split totally deserved that Oscar because for Black Stallion, which was I think his first full-length feature, Mm. aside from Eraserhead, he strapped a special microphone to the underbelly of a racehorse to capture the sound of galloping hoof beats. And he also attached a mic to the horse's head to catch its breathing while it was running. He did all these really innovative ways of getting the horse sounds. (laughs) Horse sounds, my debut EP. (laughs) The lesser-loved follow-up to Pet Sound, horse sounds. Um... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, he he really is the other part of this movie. I mean, there's been all this stuff at Pitchfork and a lot of the music sites about mm. how the soundtrack to this movie, the sound of this movie is so influential as far as sound design and ambient and industrial and all of those sort of grimy out there music genres. Um, Splett was head of AFI's sound department at the time, and he is responsible for one of the ultimate hallmarks of David Lynch, which is the room tone which is this sort of ambient buzzing of evil, which you could, I guess, it probably comes from like trying to make fluorescent lights sound meaner because it's, you think of all those shots in Twin Peaks of like a ceiling fan and there's this like thrumming kind of under it. And it's He's just, very interested in electricity. He's talked about that yes. in a lot of interviews. Electricity, yeah. working, and also failing and getting all that like crackling stuff. He's yeah. That's always been a hallmark for him. But, you know, by doing this for pennies a day, they were forced to get creative with some of the sound design. And um, they got one of these by uh, they put a big gallon water jug in a bathtub and floated it. And then they put the microphone in that. So there's a microphone hanging inside of a big glass gallon jug floating in a bathtub and they would blow across that microphone. I just want to say that it was a sparklets water jug which was the same brand that they Uh-oh. used in Pet Sounds to make on Caroline know that no weird, boom, boom, yeah. boom, that weird. So, sorry, just you mentioned Pet Sounds earlier. I have to throw that back in. That is some galaxy brain. <laughs> Do you know if it's the jug that is on um, the 13th Floor Elevator song? I, that I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? The I Amplified do, yeah. Jug Band? Yeah. Um, they worked on the score for this for like nine hours a day over the course of two months. Colson, another great Catherine Colson quote is she said they she got a call from them. I think it was like in the middle of the night, and they were like, We need we need Catherine. Catherine, we need the sound of a radiator. She's like, What do you need? You need it like hissing? He said, No, they wanted some, the sound of someone jumping off the radiator and landing in the room. And, uh, yeah, we mentioned earlier that they learned that a film studio was throwing out sound stock, so they just threw it in the back of this jury-rigged VW and hightailed it on out of there. My favorite Alan Splett bit, other than all of this, is the, uh, is the fact that apparently he was out of pocket for a while because he was in Findhorn in northern Scotland recording wind. <laughs> recording wind. Didn't they also Alan do- Splett. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> couldn't make the Oscars was recording wind. Yeah. Speaking of David Lynch's sound design, <laughs> you know, so much has been made of his famous room tone, but how about his ringtones? Are you aware <laughs> that in 2006, David Lynch debuted his own set of cell phone ringtones featuring recorded phrases such as, I like to kill deer, my teeth are bleeding, <laughs> and what the hell, damn, what the hell? Um, they are unfortunately. I'm sorry, I ruined this whole. I'm sorry. This is the thing that's made me crack up the most. Just you segueing from room tones to ringtones, and then saying I want to kill deer. Um, oh, Dave, Jordan just brought me to tears <laughs> with his recitation of David Lynch's ringtones. Did we find them? No. Well, wait a minute. I there's they're really hard to find. They're no longer available for download. There's 
supposedly on some fan websites. I can't hmm. tell if what I'm hearing because it's not him saying them, which kind of makes uh, it not as good. Yeah. But at least the ones I've been able to find, but I can't tell if fans have made them and they're just like right. replicas of it or something. Yeah. No. Mm. Damn it. Well, get the, well, get that last laughter in, Heigl, because we're about to go in <laughs> to a little segment I like to call It's the Baby. Gotta love it. <laughs> oh, so we mentioned earlier that this film's tone in the early part can kind of be described as like a surrealistic comedy there's there's that bit where they're in the where they're waiting in the lobby and the elevator doors are open for like a disconcertingly long time and they finally close like the timing of this of those cuts and you compared it to british comedy earlier but it quickly stops being funny when that (laughs) baby shows up man it is the worst thing in the world and you were able to find a, a description of this for listeners who have not seen this movie yes the writer peter sobinski for writing for RogerEbert.com, he's basically described it as imagine a cross between a fetal version of et and some form of a skinned ruminant that has been plagued with an eternal cold that causes it to cry whine and spit up various forms of goo Practically around the clock. That's as good a description as any for audio. Uh, Oh, God, it's disgusting. Lynch has repeatedly denied that the film is about his anxieties about fatherhood, but the fact that this thing allegedly uses Jennifer's actual cries... His own daughter's actual cries. His own daughter's cries, albeit manipulated in some degree. That is horrifying. And... It feels like a bit of a cheat to hype this thing up so much and then not tell people how it was made. But the fact of the matter is no one knows. This is like the biggest secret around Eraserhead. People have been asking him about this for 45 years and he refuses to talk about it. Um, Jennifer knows, but she will not tell her own daughter. Her own daughter is apparently mad. She told Vice that. And he went so far to disguise what this thing is that he blindfolded the projectionist doing dailies on this film. For for non-industry people, you shoot something, you shoot a whole day of film, and then you screen that for yourself and your editor, and if you're really unlucky, the studio heads, uh, so <laughs> that they can give feedback on it and you can kind of see how the day went. Uh, and Lynch blindfolded the guy doing that so he wouldn't see. He even, uh, the, the AFI heads came there and were like, what are we spending our money on? <laughs> and... David and they were like, like, don't mm-hmm. worry about it. Yeah, David was like, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, the speculation from people who are more invested in this than I am is that it's a some kind of fetus from an anatomy class, like a, either a sheep, a calf, or a cat, and they that he they had to take it apart and like articulate it. Uh, it's, you know, probably the most stirring argument in favor of that is Lynch himself, who has gone on record as as confessing that he dissected a cat during the course of this film's production, which presumably, you know, high school biology classes do that stuff. That's probably how he got it. He said, I examined its parts, the membranes, the hair, the skin. And there are so many textures which may be gross on one side, but when you isolate them and consider them more abstractly, they are totally beautiful. So think about that, and then think about his next quote, which is, 
I don't know what good it did me, really. <laughs> Jordan, talk us through cat dissection. <laughs> David Lynch has waxed poetic so much about dissecting this cat that it makes me think that that has actually really nothing to do with the baby in Eraserhead because he wouldn't keep mentioning it. He's talked about it so many times in different interviews. Uh, in that 2001 documentary, uh, Racerhead Stories, that we talked about earlier, he discussed it extensively with an almost ecstatic fervor. Uh, yeah. He compared the organs to the Fellini film Roma, which I'm not sure if I follow, but <laughs> he said it was unbelievable. The organs in the cat were brilliant colors. And he later buried it in the urban wasteland that we see at the start of the film. And I think in a, uh, a deleted scene, Henry actually like, trips on it or something um and he buried it there and then he excavated it sometime later which brought david lynch even further delights he said it was the perfect marriage of cat and earth uh before <sighs> adding that he uh he took a photo of it there's i i genuinely i tend to think of him as a pretty innocuous guy all things considered but that's weird let's Dahmer level him uh yeah um, other unverifiable details about the baby. Lynch made the cast sign NDAs that were specifically tied to how he made the thing. You could not use photos of it in promotional efforts for the film. <laughs> why, and, why, why would you? Yeah, why exactly. Would you use that. <laughs> Come see this. <laughs> and he buried it when they were done and they, they eulogized it. The rap party doubled as this thing's funeral. His quotes about this have remained admirably consistent. He says, maybe it was born nearby or maybe it was found. God, it's... Uh, Do we know like where he buried of... it? Do some, like, film freaks, like, go and excavate it and... It was in the Winchell's Donuts. <laughs> That's what Jack Nance was there for. That was what he was... He's protecting the secret of the Eraserhead baby and the Illuminati killed him. Wake up, sheeple. Um, <laughs> the film's production manager, Doreen Small, was the hands behind the baby. Uh, was this not the I woman that, Jack, uh, that David that Lynch was no, having yeah, an, affair an affair with? with. Yeah. That's interesting that she got the honor of... Yeah, put your hands in this sheep calf. Doreen, what? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Wind pulleys, wires. I. Oh, God, it's so gross. Um, but... <laughs> When during scenes when it actually had to do a lot more, um, it was Alan Splett working it. And she said, Doreen Small said, because he plays the cello and he has a certain kind of touch. Oh. Um, moving right on down the line for this weird, gross thing that I'm already feeling bad about subjecting you fine people so much to. Colson was tasked with its death scene and spoilers. Uh, Henry gets morbidly curious about what's happening in there and the baby is wrapped up like mummified and he cuts the bandages open and they're, they essentially were keeping the thing together because it just, oh God, it's so messed up. But she, I just love this quote. I had to put this on there. She talks about special effects departments at the time were like kind of a loose community. So different people working on different things kind of knew that they could kind of call each other and be like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? I have to shoot such and such a scene. What should I do? And she said, do you remember calling the special effects department at Universal <laughs> and saying, do you have any suggestion as to how to fill a room full of mush? <laughs> this is funny. My wife and I were watching this and she was like, that baby is disgusting and incredible and real. And then when the head gets really, really big and fills up the whole room, she was like, that doesn't look as good. It's not as, she goes, it's not as moist. <laughs> 
<laughs> it doesn't. So the, the baby's head fills up the whole room during the climax. And apparently they had moved to a different neighborhood in L.A. at this point, And they just built it in their backyard. So imagine at some point in, in the mid-70s in L.A., you look out your window. It's a beautiful L.A. day. And there's giant, weird egg baby head in your backyard. And you look down and there's David Lynch in three ties and a straw hat. And he's waving to you. I don't know. In the mid-70s in L.A., that seems just kind of par for the chorus. <laughs> hey And having said all that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information right after this. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. In heaven, everything. We should get Neil. Has Neil Young ever covered that? I was listening to cover versions of this earlier, and the Pixies one, the Black Francis one, is probably the, he has the closest to that woman's voice, I think. Anyway, The Lady in the Radiator, the theme song to this movie, 
in heaven. Uh, it's probably the second most famous David Lynch musical cue after the Angelo Badalamenti theme song to Twin Peaks um, or little Jimmy Scott singing Sycamore Trees from the season two finale. But you differ to me on this. Well, I also, I'm not a huge Lynch head, but I still love the, this is the girl scene from Mulholland Drive with right. I've told every little star. That was always pretty, but I'm also a giant 60s nerd too. But uh, yeah, that In Heaven song is haunting. And I know Devo were big fans of it and they loved it so much that they actually asked David Lynch if they could play it live. But also Bauhaus covered yeah. it too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, this is nuts, man. Do you know about Peter Ivers? I know you're like a National Lampoon guy. Is this the first you're hearing of him? I know Doug Kenny and all the people he's connected to. I'd never heard of him, no. I, again, a whole podcast. We could do a whole episode on him, but I'll just give you the, the even the just the two graphs of his Wikipedia article are insane. Uh, his biographer, Josh Frank, described him as being connected by a second degree to every major pop culture event of the last 30 years. So uh, he was a, Yeah, I know. He was a musician first and foremost. His first instrument was the harmonica. Uh, he played with Muddy Waters at one point, and in 1968, Muddy Waters called him the greatest harp player alive. Um, when he was in Los, I'm just going to keep saying these with question marks. They're not actually question marks, but it's just insane. Uh, in LA, he was signed to Warner Brothers by Van Dyke Parks and Lenny Waronker to a hundred grand contract as a solo artist. Back when that he meant made, something. Yeah, yeah. Well, he made it and then he made his live debut opening for the New York Dolls. He was on bills with Fleetwood Mac and John Cale. David Lynch asks him to write this song for Razorhead. He does. Then he goes on to score a Ron Howard movie, Grand Theft Auto, and then an episode of BJ and the Bear. And then he becomes a ghost songwriter. He wrote songs for the Pointer Sisters, Jefferson Airplane's Marty Balin on his solo career, Diana Ross. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know about Doug Kenny, who founded the National Lampoon. That was Peter Ivor's best friend. We are also not even talking about the Los Angeles area UHF show that he hosted called New Wave Theater, which was this early days, not quite public access, but it's like night vein. flight. Yeah. They were responsible for bringing huge parts of the LA punk subculture into the mainstream or as mainstream as a UHF channel got, <laughs> but Bad Religion, Fear, The Dead Kennedys, The Circle Jerks. Guests on this show included Deborah Winger. Beverly D'Angelo from National Lampoon's Vacation and Elvira. <laughs> and so in that Pitchfork interview from 2012, Lynch said, I don't know how I heard about Peter Ivers, but this, oh, I love this story so much. Alan and I went up to Pete's house and we asked him if he could write the music and sing these lyrics in the spirits of Fats Waller. Alan Splett had played David Lynch these Fats Waller recordings of Fats Waller playing pipe organ. And he had gotten them off an out-of-print LP. So he was playing them to David Lynch on two-inch tape, or quarter-inch tape, excuse me. Um, and so he said, David, like, this album is out of print. All I have are these bootleg tapes. And so they went to Peter Ivers' house and said, hey, can you play us, like, a facsimile of these bootleg Fats Waller recordings and Peter Ivers goes over to his album stack and pulls out the out of print Fats Waller album is like you mean this one 
And he does it. He he records the organ part. It's like the only non-ambient industrial stuff on the soundtrack. And so David Lynch has the lyrics to In Heaven. Does he write the he, lyrics? Did he write those? Yeah, David Lynch wrote the lyrics. And he he took them over to Ivor's house. And he said he's been laying on this chaise lounge. And he's got a microphone dangling over him. And he sang it right in front of me. Sang the whole song that was used in this film in this falsetto voice. And he loved the lyrics, which made me feel really good. And Fats Waller actually does appear in the film because when Henry goes in and puts his turntable on, that's the Fats oh. Waller record. And David Lynch has confirmed that Henry is a Fats Waller fan. He says he loves him. While we're on the topic of radiators, segue. I just want to say that Heigl titled this section, What We Talk About When We Talk About Radiators. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned earlier David Lynch has a thing about light bulbs, the sound of electricity, the kind of ambient tones in a room that machinery generates. Radiators. Big thing. Splett talking to Terry Gross in 1994 on Fresh Air. Uh, he says, we had a big gas heater in the editing room where I was working, which had a big metal case on it. And so one day we stuck a tiny little microphone in the bottom of this thing and David was blowing on the top of it and we got a lot of sounds this way. So that's bing, radiator number one. Uh, the lady in the radiator wasn't even in the film's original draft. In another interview from 1979, Lynch said, we'd already shot scenes of the radiator. So he was already using establishing shots of this radiator. And he said it was just natural, but it was a certain kind of radiator that had a little compartment in there. And I had done a little drawing of a lady, and I looked at this drawing, and an idea came in. I felt this lady lived in the radiator, and I thought, is that a place where she could live? And I went running into Henry's room and looked at the radiator, and I got this radiator from an old studio that was closing, and this particular radiator had a little place that she could live in. You gotta just do a sound effect for every time I say radiator in there. <laughs> I love, I mean, I'm, I find it touching how concerned he is that there's a place for this fictitious figure to live in the radiator despite the fact that you would have to be two inches tall and not get burned up by the heat in the radiator <laughs> he's really like concerned that there's not like a little box again i'm not a lynch guy but i love the love that he has for these terrible weird characters yeah you know he has like a genuine empathy and affection for these people and then the characters that he creates there's never like a contempt with any of them you know? It's a good point, yeah. Even, like, the villains in Twin Peaks, ostensibly, he still, like, finds fascinating and gives them space. And Anyway, you're gonna have to cut out all my David Lynch guy <clears throat> stuff. Uh, in 2014, he gave an interview to Vulture where he says she first came along as a drawing. But then in that same interview, he says that she came along about a year after they started shooting when he started doing Transcendental Meditation. Have you ever heard of his book, Catching the Big Fish? No. It's this whole book about transcendental meditation. He talks about the idea that ideas are like fish and your mind is like a thing that you fish in. And so for the small ideas come when you're fishing in the shallow water and the big fish come from the, the deeper water and transcendental meditation lets you get really deep into your subconscious. And it's really interesting because he talks about doing this. Is it Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway with the, the jump scare, the thing that comes out of the dumpster? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's either that or something in Mulholland Drive that he talks about in that book. He was like meditating in his trailer and he walked outside 
and it's afternoon in LA and he puts his hand on the hood of a car and the car is really hot and the shock of when he pulled his hand off he says that entire sequence suddenly came to him wow it's so interesting right like he yeah when you think about all of his stuff, people are like, ah, he's completely random and he does these like, you know, it's the, the Simpsons bit or the Saturday Night Live bit making fun of Twin Peaks where it's like, I have no idea. Brilliant. I have no idea what this means. If you just think about all of his these visuals as just like the dross and detritus of your subconscious or your dream world that gets dredged up, it suddenly becomes like, I, I, I don't know, a lot clearer. Anyway, um, so the woman who played the lady in The Radiator, Laurel Near, she was in a singing trio with her two sisters, one of whom was a friend of Catherine Coulson's, and that was how she got pulled into the film. She had never worked in a film before. I don't think she has since. I think this is like one of her two IMDb credits. And she just said, David Lynch liked my smile. <laughs> I thought I was going to just go and dance across the stage, she said. And in a rare lack of foresight, they built the stage for her months before they shot it. And I guess it just sat around one of the few things they didn't tear down and sell. And she she talks about those cheek, the chipmunk cheek makeup that they had to do for her. And she said it kind of peeled your skin off when they took it off. Uh, and David Lynch has said, to me, the Lady in the Radiator is sort of a beacon of light. Henry's world was really dark without her, and she represents some hope there for old Henry. She's a very strange-looking woman for sure. She's got skin problems that she's trying to cover up with pancake makeup. <laughs> and that song in heaven is available on the soundtrack that was released on the Dead Kennedys record label, Alternative Tentacles. And the funny part to me is that it, the whole record is mostly clanks and rumbles. It's and the like, room tone. Yeah, and room tone. It's basically like yeah. a John Cage or Stockhausen album. Um, I listen to it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get back to something you said earlier about just like sort of Lynch's scenes being, you know, the detritus of your subconscious. I mean, something. one of the shows I host is a show where I interview musicians and I, I'm somebody who loves music with all of his heart, but has never been able to write a song ever. Uh, and I'm so curious about what compels people to do so. One of my favorite questions to ask people is, do you ever uh, listen to your songs back and learn something about yourself? Almost like a dream reading, you know, you, you hear it back and, and, you know, are able to get some kind of perspective on it or parse it apart like you do when you dissect the dream. And I, I don't know, I think that's interesting, just, uh, and I want to hear more about, you know, what you have to say about uh, these well, what scenes if, What have people said? Um, very different. Some people say no, not at all. Um, hmm. Sometimes people, usually from the vantage point of several years on when they're singing, like, you know, for their big hits, for example, oh, okay. it's been a couple of years later and they kind of have to keep revisiting them. They say like, oh yeah, I see what I was doing at that time a lot more clearly than I did at the time. Um, All right. So folks, we just cut about 15 minutes of Jordan <laughs> and I talking about our dreams and our childhood traumas. Um, Lynch cut about 20 minutes worth of this film from the final footage. So there you go. That's a great segue. <laughs> That's a great segue. Just as we cut moments of oversharing between two dear friends, Lynch <laughs> cut 20 minutes worth of footage from this film. Jordan, why don't you tell us about that? Uh, and also your fears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, these lost scenes include a sequence of Catherine Coulson finally getting her part in this movie, but it was ultimately cut. She's playing the uh, the baby's midwife. There's a scene of Henry playing with the with David Lynch's beloved dead cat. And then there's another scene of a man uh, abusing two women in strapped to a bed with a car battery, which David Lynch has said he cut because it was too disturbing, which, yeah. given what he felt was totally fine for us to see, wolf. Um, yeah, well, you don't want to see the stuff Lynch is like, that was a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. And um, and he's later said, I loved them as little scenes, but they didn't belong in the film. And he cut them from the composite print, which is like the master version of the film. And Catherine Coulson is quoted as saying, we didn't have any money to cut negative, so we just cut the entire scenes from this master version. That was what happened to my scene when I'm tied to the bed with battery cables. <laughs> That's probably in a landfill somewhere. And many fans have hoped that they'd, you know, include these deleted scenes in the Criterion release or some kind of expanded version. But it really seems like these scenes are lost forever. And in the documentary we've mentioned many times so far, Racerhead Stories, Lynch gets weirdly emotional talking about all the stuff that he wished he'd saved from the production, which is kind of weirdly touching. And all that's left of these scenes are the memories of the cast that were in them and a few production photos. There's a scene of these people strapped to the bed with a car battery and <laughs> jumper cables nearby. And, um, and that's it. It just goes back to what I was saying, man. Like, even the grotesque, messed up stuff in his movies, he cherishes yeah yeah because it's there you know because it's he made it i i really it's in all of us I don't, I, yeah man i don't know i god am i a david lynch guy is that the sad realization i'm coming to with this are we all are david <laughs> lynch guys really <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> if you texted or if you tweeted us with a hashtag jack nance's winchell's donuts order we will send you an hour and a half of Alex doing David Lynch room tones into the microphone. And our 20 minutes of dream analysis. Yeah, that's another bonus feature. Venmo yeah, me five Patreon. Yep. Uh, All so, right. So he cut these scenes out after the first couple screenings of Eraserhead. The very first, I think the premiere of Eraserhead, well, you can't really call it that, but the earliest <laughs> screening of Eraserhead was held at the screening room at the AFI Greystone Mansion where it was filmed. And Lynch invited his parents, which is amazing. <laughs> and when it was over, someone seated next to his mom overheard her say, oh, I wouldn't want to have a dream like that. <laughs> Just, Which makes you wonder how he sold. Like, what are we, son? What are we giving this money to? And he's like, "Oh, it's a movie about a dream I had." Yeah, it's cute though. He uh, Lynch later paid his father back all the money that he kept, like meticulous log of how much money his father gave him. And then Aww. when he was successful, he paid it all back. And which he said was a totally unnecessary gesture. His dad did not expect to get it back, but he paid him. And Lynch said that was one of the happiest days of his life. So even if they didn't get his movies, they lived to see him reap the rewards, which is sweet. What a sweet boy he is. Right? Yeah. Ugh. Um, Eraserhead was perhaps needless to say Eraserhead <laughs> was ejected from Cannes rejected from Cannes although they've put like Lars von Trier and shit on Cannes so Cannes I think he just missed time. it I think he just missed the entry probably uh, and the New York Film Festival although he says that he was he, rejected from yeah he says he brought all 24 reels of the film 
to the New York Film Festival in a shopping cart that he took from his nearby farmer's market. <laughs> and the third third time's the charm, baby. He was accepted into the Los Angeles International Film Exposition, a.k.a. Filmex, in 1977. And in anticipation of the years of midnight screenings that would ultimately bolster the film's reputation, this Filmex premiere did indeed take place at midnight, very fitting. And the writer Danny Lee wrote a great piece about Eraserhead's premiere for The Guardian a few years back, and he features this amazing lead. On March 19th, 1977, the world changed, after which there was a long, uncomfortable <laughs> silence. The occasion was the first public screening of Eraserhead, the featured debut of David Lynch at the Film X Festival in Los Angeles. It was not a hot ticket. The <laughs> film arrived with little advanced publicity at the only festival to accept it. The screening took place at midnight, drawing a modest crowd who dutifully watched for the next two hours. The film was then longer than the 89 minutes it became. When it ended, nothing. But no one left either. Just silence. Then, finally... Applause. End scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so someone who is there passed word of the film along to Ben Barinholtz of New York's Libra Films. This guy is probably one of the most influential figures in 20th century cinema. I On song, certainly. Yeah, exactly. Just not a name. But, you know, he basically pioneered the concept of a midnight movie at his theater, which is the Elgin in, in Chelsea in New York and stuff like Pink Flamingos, um, El Topo by Jodorowsky, uh, The Harder They Come, the Jimmy Cliff film. And oh. he slotted Eraserhead in. And his invitation to it was priceless. And in keeping with the whole baby theme, he made it look like a birth announcement, which read, we'd like you to meet the sweet little girl who has brought so much sunshine and joy to our world. Name, Eraserhead. Birth date, midnight. Weight, heavy. Dot, 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 in quotation marks. Parents, David K. Lynch. I love that. Imagine being on top of the world in 1980 and just the world is your oyster, and you, you're like, oh, let's go to a midnight movie. And you, it's like Rocky Horrors last week. Let's see what yeah, we Yeah, what there. a fun, whimsical yeah. time that was. Like, let's go to, let's get a little zooted or whatever. And Saturday Night Fever has just come out. <laughs> There's nowhere to go but up. Let's go see, I don't know, Eraserhead. This looks fun. Anyway, this movie, unsurprisingly in retrospect, but got a lot of really heavy endorsements one of whom uh john waters desperate living was screening in new york around the same time and john waters called eraserhead his favorite movie at a press event for his own film and encouraged everyone in the audience to see it uh stanley kubrick while he was making the shining a few years later he screened eraserhead to his cast and crew which makes a lot of sense um mm. all of those eerie shots of the hallways at uh God, I don't really think I ever thought of this before, but... Even the floor! Isn't there, like, some crazy yeah. floor pattern? Yep. And then the, the lobby carpet. and Eraserhead, he's got the zigzag. Wow, I never thought Damn. of that. And as you mentioned, uh, Lynch screened uh, Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Oh, yeah, when, but when they first started filming uh, Eraserhead 70 years before, <laughs> uh, yeah, he sat down and watched Sunset Boulevard with the cast and crew... Clearly trying to evoke some kind of haunting presence of some kind because that whole such movie is just about. Yeah. Such an interesting through line of the whole 
thread of Hollywood history is tied yeah. through this movie. I This is one of those things that gets passed around on the internet. I have not been able to find this original interview, but Charles Bukowski of being a head <laughs> fame <laughs> just one of the most simultaneously influential authors poets and worst people in the world uh he claimed that the first thing he ever saw when he got cable was Eraserhead, which subsequently ruined all other television for him lastly mel brooks we mentioned earlier mel brooks of all people was a fan of this film and got lynch basically launched lynch's career because this is not a student film but this is more or less a student film mel brooks sees it and he's producing elephant man he's a, he's already in pre-pro for this movie and pushes lynch to work on it and that launches you know from there he does dune he famously turned down um return of the jedi around this time and then it's a short hop skimp at a jump to Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, and Mulholland Drive. So Mel Brooks, man, I love it. Uh, he hadn't heard of Lynch before. He hadn't heard of Well, who would have? Well, he hadn't had, heard of him. Yeah. yeah. And he goes to see Eraserhead, and he comes out of the screening yelling. David's there. He says, you're a madman. I love you. You're in. And this is my <laughs> favorite like quote. like the producers. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's what he thought, that they would lose money on, on <laughs> Elephant Man <laughs> instead of winning Oscars. Oh, man, I got to bust out my John Hurt for you at some point. I am not an animal. I am a human being. Uh, that was all right. Was like that was six pretty good. And a half. Um, he said, despite expecting Lynch to be, quote, a grotesque, a fat little German with fat stains running down his chin, just eating pork. But <laughs> <laughs> he thought... He said he, he was flabbergasted by Eraserhead. It's beautiful and it's very clear. It's like Beckett, which I get, Samuel Beckett. It's like Ionesco, not a mm. reference I understand. You're a film student. Anything? No, he's a, he's a, a Anything playwright. There? Oh, he's, like a, he's like a theater of the absurd type. Rhinoceros, no yes. Oh, okay. All right, well, you pulled some reviews for this, which I think are great. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a theme in pretty much every movie that we've talked about on here that went on to become a beloved classic. Not loved at the time, but doubly so in this case. Uh, Variety called Eraserhead a sickening bad taste exercise. And Tom Buckley at the New York Times, I think in 1980, so a few years after this had been making the rounds in the midnight movie circuit, called it a murkily pretentious shocker with an excruciatingly slow pace. <laughs> I mean, great. <laughs> um, yeah, we mentioned before this movie was made for like, I don't know, 10,000 from AFI plus like, what do you think? Another David 15? Lynch's dad. Yeah, another 10, 15 from friends and family. If that, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm seeing um, figures 7 million it grossed. With re-releases and yeah. Catherine Coulson would later say that the percentage points she got on this movie uh, put her daughter through college. So, so I mean, it made something. Good lord, yeah. I mean, is this and probably um, Halloween? Ha oh. Halloween for a long time was the most profitable independent film of all time. It's got to be up there with Blair Witch, right? In terms of like, I, well, it was the, Halloween until it was Blair Witch. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And then I mean, just the total like is. Probably for inflation, Blair Witch and, and 
eraser probably around the same amount how little it was i think you know what it was is probably the special effects on um eraser head that made it oh. less profitable i mean you think about the actual vfx in that movie heavy quotation marks vfx um we didn't get into this but the lady across the hall who's like the prostitute character or whatever you know the last place she popped up in is um orange is the new black Oh, that's right. She's one of the like Russian, like the old woman that's kind of like peripherally in um, Red's circle. She's got like white hair down to her shoulders, but she's got that same very. Um, she's super cool looking. Yeah, yeah, uh, man. I thought it was Anne Bancroft when she first came on the screen. Speaking of Mel Brooks. Oh yeah, that would have been great. Um, maybe that's why he liked it. He was maybe. he was married to Anne Bancroft for. Anyone who doesn't have Mel Brooks's personal history on lock for some reason. I want to do, I mean, I wonder if Orson, we watched all those Orson Welles interviews. I wanted to find if Orson Welles ever said anything about David Lynch. That'd be oh, incredible. Wait, did you watch the Dick Cavett ones? Uh, it was in that Twitter thread I sent you that was oh, just like yeah. him insulting various people. <laughs> he he was on Dick Cavett at least twice, if not three times, and they're on Prime and maybe even just on YouTube, and they're so good. Actually, uh, speaking of, I, I looked up, because I imagine that, you know, the five-year filming period, production period of Eraserhead must certainly make it, you know, on a list of, you know, movies that took the longest time to produce. Oh, sure. And there is a Wikipedia list, and the top of the list is the Orson Welles movie that just came out, was finished off a few years ago. Oh, he's that great unfinished thing. Yeah. yeah. What was it? The the other side of the wind uh, that yes. came out in 2018. I think he started producing it in 1970. Yeah. So it's a 48 year production period. Although I don't know. I, I feel weird counting that considering. Yeah. I'm sure for a good 30 years, nothing was done, but still. But at the end of the day, what the hell else do you say about Eraserhead? I mean, I mentioned earlier, I cannot think of another filmmaker and I'm sure film Twitter or David Lynch Twitter will get after me about this. I can't think of another filmmaker who in 25 years, which is not a big span of time for a director's career, 25 years went from making something like Eraserhead to coming within a hair's distance of an Oscar from a Holland Drive. You know, he did Elephant Man after Eraserhead, and then he turned down Return of the Jedi, and it, with the exception of Dune, which is the movie why, largely thanks to... De Laurentiis, he has final cut on all of his stuff. So then, uh, I said this before, but Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive, boom, boom, boom. I love that story about him turning down Return of the Jedi. Apparently, he was personally asked by George Lucas, but turned him down. In part, because he hated the Wookiees. <laughs> Which, I mean, to be fair, is probably the least Lynchian creature to ever exist. The Wookiees or the Ewoks? Oh, sorry, the Ewoks, Yes. The Ewoks. Okay. Um, and he was quoted as saying, I had next door to zero interest in doing Return of the Jedi, but I've always admired George. George is a guy who does what he loves, and I do what I love. The difference is what George does makes hundreds of billions <laughs> of dollars. Ain't that the truth, man? Yeah. That's what I'm saying again. Like, oh, man, I don't know. I I think I'm a David Lynch guy. <laughs> Jordan, what does the razor head mean? What does it all mean? As with the infant prop, David Lynch has remained extremely tight-lipped about the actual meaning of Eraserhead. He gave the opposite of an answer when speaking the Vulture a few years ago. Uh, this doesn't answer the question, but it's an interesting take nonetheless. He said, every viewer is different. People go into a world and they have an experience, and they bring so much of what makes them react. It's already inside of them. 
Each viewer gets a different thing from every film. So there are some people where Eraserhead speaks to them, and others it doesn't speak to them at all. It's just the way it goes. But no one, to my knowledge, has ever seen the film the way I see it. The interpretation of what it's all about has never been my interpretation. So, as with most art, perhaps it's best to not seek a literal answer. Getting back to uh, Subsinski's piece for RogerEbert.com that I mentioned earlier, he wrote, To quote, explain Eraserhead would be like cutting a drum open to see what makes the noise. You may get your answer, but you tend to ruin the drum in the process. That's a cool analogy. Simile. Yeah, I... 2004, it goes into the Library of Congress. I, again, film... Man, I'm making enemies out of film Twitter. I think this is the most influential surrealist film of all time. Regardless of whatever film Twitter thinks. I'm calling it easily the most liked. We talked about 7 million. I, I couldn't verify that with any real hard data, but... On a, whatever we said it was, 25,000, probably 10,000 from AFI, plus whatever he was able to finagle. That's, that's More than it wild. deserves. <laughs> um, and I mean that in the nicest way. But yeah, man, it has an 80, for, again, for a movie like this, for something this bizarre, it has an 87 on Metacritic. It has a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. That's wild. Even uh, taking in every Tom, Dick, and Harry I don't know what it is on Letterboxd. I'm not on Letterboxd yet, but even taking in every like guy who just hears this is a good movie to like rip a bong to and watch it, that is an astoundingly good record. I mean, how look- much of it you think it's like an Emperor's New Clothes kind of thing too, though, after so many years of like, it's Kubrick's favorite movie. Yeah, people being unwilling to call it out. I don't know, maybe you're sounding the trumpet on a new charge, a new dawn on of calling out a racer head for being horse You know... Jordan, as the song goes, in heaven, everything is fine. You've got your good thing, and I've got mine. Your good thing is a racer head, and mine is In Like Flint, Austin Powers' favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, as always, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. You poor bastards. (laughs) What? Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the risk takers that help reinvent and reimagine the kinds of stories we see on TV? We Disrupt This Broadcast, a brand new podcast from the Peabody Awards and the Center for Media and Social Impact, 
talks to creators of TV shows like Abbott Elementary, Watchmen, Black Mirror, and Better Things to explore how the most compelling shows and the creative powers behind them are upending the status quo. Listen to We Disrupt This Broadcast now, available where you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.